It is great to be back. Wow, did we miss all of you so much, so much. It was, uh, it was an amazing time. Uh, my heart and head are so full of the things that I have seen and heard and, and just in communion with Christ as we spent time in Israel and, and uh, we went from stem to stern. We went from Dan to Beersheba north to south and east to west, and um, I was telling somebody earlier here, they, we estimate uh, that we drove about a thousand miles in six days in a country that's only 200 miles long, so, uh, so you kind of get an idea of the amount of backtracking that went on, and uh, we also hiked somewhere from three to five miles uh, each day as well as we uh, toured uh, all kinds of archaeological sites. And, and uh, uh, people have said this to me before we went. They said, you'll read your Bible. You know, you read your Bible sort of in back black and white. After you go to Israel, you'll read your Bible in living color. And, and I didn't really understand it. I think I understand it now. And I would affirm it as well. It was, uh, it was amazing. And so um, my problem is, uh, and Carol took about 2,000 pictures. And... Uh, and the problem is that every, virtually every picture I can probably talk for 15 or 20 minutes uh, because it just brings back all of the memories and, and, uh, and the scriptures that by God's grace I've studied these last 30, almost 35 years. So, um, so yeah, we're just really, really full. So we invite you to come on, on a Saturday to uh, either the matinee or the evening showing. <laughs> and... Uh, and we will try, my, my, uh, my project this week is to try to select a few pictures and put together something that's coherent and uh, that will be a blessing uh, to you. So we, uh, we would love to, to share just a little bit of what God has, has uh, done for us. So I'm greatly thankful for the elders, church, for allowing us to be the way. Uh, especially appreciative of my brother Vincent for bringing the word while I was gone. Uh, Vince, it was a great series. Where are you hiding back there? There you are, my brother. It was a great series. It was well needed. And uh, I've listened to three of the five uh, so far. It's my intention to hear the others. And um, just good, good stuff. We are very fortunate as a congregation to have such fine Bible teachers as, uh, as part of our mix. So uh, God has been very gracious to us. All right, enough. Open your Bibles to uh, Matthew Matthew chapter 12, we're going back there. You know, I, I was looking back at my notes. It's been about three months since we've been in Matthew. So time flies. And we're back again to Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 12. But uh, if you're like uh, most people, you're going to need a little bit of a review to uh, get your head back in the ball game as we pick it up here in Matthew chapter 12. So let me do that. Let me spend a little bit of time and just uh, get a running start at this. So you'll remember, and I think it's up every week as part of the uh, sort of the opening slide, that the, uh, the theme of Matthew's gospel is, uh, Behold, your king is coming to you. Behold, your king is coming to you. Matthew is the most uh, complete and detailed presentation of the messianic Davidic kingship of Jesus that you will find in the New Testament. That is Matthew's intention. 
is to show us Jesus as the great Davidic king. The question, of course, that would naturally arise in the minds of certainly those in the first century, and particularly those who were of Jewish background, is that if Jesus is the king, then what happened? What happened? How come he is not on his throne? Where is the kingdom? To a people steeped in the Old Testament and, and desirous of seeing the, the, this great kingdom that had long been promised to them, and then to, to have it not be here. Just raises that question in people's minds. And so Matthew wants to answer that question. And he does it really in a twofold way. He, he does first by demonstrating that Jesus is the king. And he does it by, by presenting really almost every conceivable form of evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Davidic king. He is the one foretold in the prophets. And then he begins to, to answer the question of, well, if that's true, then where is the kingdom? What happened? And, and the book really kind of breaks down that way. The, the first part of the book, chapters 1 through the, the beginning part of chapter 12, really addresses the question about him being the king. And then it, then it hinges, uh, and it hinges on uh, the section that we're going to take up next week, Lord willing, where it begins to address what happened then to this great kingdom. Why is he not sitting on David's throne, and what will come of all of this? So let's uh, just, in terms of a little bit of review, let's just go back here and, and look at some of the evidence that Matthew brings forward to demonstrate that Jesus is the Davidic king. And we're going to move super quick here. But I just want to show you a few things. So take you back to chapter 1 and verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. So he begins by, by presenting the lineage of the king. The lineage of the king. And notice that he fastens that lineage first into David, and then into Abraham. So he, he fastens it into the kingdom promises to David of 2 Samuel 7. And then he fastens it back into the father of the Jewish nation, into Abraham himself. And so he presents this lineage of a king. Chapter 2 is the next strand of evidence that he brings forward. And in chapter 2, we have the visit of the Magi. We have the visit of these Persian kingmakers. And what we have here is Gentile worship. And that's important because the prophets tell us that the, that the Davidic king will receive worldwide worship. He is the king of Israel, but he is not the king of Israel alone. He is the, the great king who will reside on his throne in Jerusalem, but the nations will come to worship at his feet. And so it's important for Matthew to demonstrate to us by this, uh, what we know as a Christmas story, the visit of the Magi, the visit of the Gentiles. And uh, it's appropriate here in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They are looking for the king. In fulfillment of prophecy. 
And that takes us into chapter 3. And here we find the prophetic herald, the one who goes before the king, the one who, who calls for the nation to prepare, their, prepare themselves for the coming of the king. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It, it stands right here. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, that is, John is the one referred to, when the prophet said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist, fulfilling these prophecies of Isaiah to tell the nation to to repent and prepare to receive their king, the prophetic herald. It takes us to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, we have the moral qualification of the king to represent his people. The king stands in for the nation. And in order to do that, he needs to be morally qualified. And so we find the temptation, what we call the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, where Jesus demonstrates That where all who have gone before him, including the nation of Israel, have failed, he has succeeded, (coughs) pardon me, in depending on the Spirit of God to live a righteous life and thus qualify himself to be the substitute for his people as laid out in the prophecy of Isaiah 53. So we have the moral qualification to represent his people, chapter 4. Chapters 5 through 7, I think I'm allergic to Southern California. Maybe I need to go back to Israel. Chapters 5 through 7 represent the great discourse of the king. This is one of the longest sections in the scriptures by which we hear the actual voice of Jesus as he teaches. (coughs) And what he, he brings to the people here is the requirement to enter his kingdom. And you see it most clearly in chapter 5 and in verse 20. Where he says, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the most righteous men of the day... The ones who the nation looked up to and, and, and believed that these were holy men. Unless your righteousness surpasses them, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The bar is set impossibly high. And the point is that there is nothing that you can do to earn your way into this kingdom, to qualify yourself for this kingdom, you must instead repent and throw yourself upon the mercy of the king himself. (coughs) Pardon me, chapters 8 and 9. Matthew gives us a sampling of what we call kingdom miracles. Again, anyone familiar with with the prophets of the Old Testament and what they speak of the kingdom know that it is characterized by a time of peace and prosperity. It is characterized by a time of of worldwide righteousness 
It is characterized by a time in which the, the, the curse of the fall is severely restricted and pushed back. And so that people begin to enjoy life as God had originally intended for us to enjoy it. And so Jesus gives the people a taste of the kingdom. A taste of what it's like. John the Baptist says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, well, the kingdom, is this the kingdom we've thought of, that we've always long thought from the prophets? Yes, it is. And here, let me show you. And so we have a whole series, nine different miracles that are presented here, whereby Jesus demonstrates his kingly authority over nature, over disease, over the demonic realm, over all those things that bring trouble and misery to the human race. He gives people a taste of this kingdom that he is talking about, chapters 8 through 9. And you would think at this point that that ought to be good enough. That people ought to flock. That people ought to repent. They ought to throw themselves on their faces before the king. That they ought to to call out to him to have mercy upon them. And and yet, that's not what we see. Instead, beginning in, in chapter 10, what we see is a growing unbelief. A growing rejection of the message of the king. And so in chapter 10, Jesus talks about how, to, how his disciples are to live in the, in the face of this growing rejection. And for them, this is a bit of a mystery because still outwardly he is popular. But Jesus understands that, that, that he, although he might be outwardly popular, the people are following him because of what they can get from him. He's a gravy train to them. And that the reality of the matter is, is that they have not opened their heart to the message of the kingdom. And so he warns his disciples in chapter 10 and verse 16 that their approach needs to change. That they need to be shrewd as serpents, he says, and innocent as doves. Shrewd as serpents, innocent as doves. That means that they need to operate with an awareness of the circumstances and situation in which they find themselves. And repeatedly in the life of Jesus, we're going to see it modeled what it means to be shrewd as a serpent and innocent as a dove. And in fact, the text that we'll be looking at this morning is a, is a demonstration of that truth. Shrewd as a serpent, innocent as a dove. As the, the, the hardness begins to grow, and most particularly among the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders and teachers of the people, Jesus issues an amazing a call to individuals at the end of chapter 11. The end of chapter 11, beginning in verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He is calling to a remnant within the nation to come out from among them. To, to abandon the religion of the Pharisees, the religion that they have grown up with, the religion that they have embraced, and instead to, to flee from it and to come to him. And Matthew gives us an illustration here in the beginning part of, of chapter 12 
just what a contrast exists between Jesus who is, who is gentle and humble and offers rest for a man's soul and the, and the hard-heartedness and burden of a pharisaical legalistic system in the Sabbath controversies at the beginning of chapter 12. Now, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 12 and, and running to verse 13, we see this confrontation with the man of the withered hand. And Jesus heals this man, but he heals him in such a way that he, he just really chaps the Pharisees. He just tells the man to stretch out your hand. And the man stretches it out and it is healed like new. And the Pharisees know exactly what he has done. And their big thing is that you can't do work on the Sabbath, and you certainly can't heal somebody. And Jesus says, what kind of religion is that? What kind of religion is it that that you serve the religion? A a hard-hearted religion that would care nothing for for people who are hurting. So he heals this man, but he he does it in a way in which they, they can't even pin anything on him. He just says, hey, stick out your hand. And it's healed. And at that point, the animosity of the Pharisees crystallizes. And you see it here in verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. The only thing they can think of to do is they need to kill him. And so we'll begin their, their various plots and conspiracies in which they will attempt to to get him alone in a place where they can kill him. That's the background for Matthew chapter 12 and beginning in verse 15. But there's one more important piece of background that that we need to bring to bear here before we look at the text. Another critical truth that we need to understand before we we dig in here. And it's simply this. Jesus was and is fully God and fully man. Is that right? Is that what the scriptures teach us? Jesus is fully God and fully man. And it is to a very large degree, and maybe this is a new thought for some, but it is to a very large degree in his manhood that he accomplished his work as Messiah. It was as a man that he accomplished his work as Messiah. The perfect man, in which he lived and ministered by the power of the Holy Spirit, serving not only as our Savior, but but as our role model for what it means to live a Spirit-filled life. And that's important that we understand that as we, we dig into this text. Peter understood that, by the way, in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, as he is summarizing the ministry of Jesus to Cornelius, where he says, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. God anointed him with the Holy Spirit. That's just what the prophets say would happen. Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. 
The prophet Isaiah writes, Then a, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Shrewd as a serpent. Innocent as a dove. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Luke chapter 4. Keep your thumb there in in, uh, chapter 12. Or if you have an electronic Bible, guess you can't do that. And uh, keep your thumb in Matthew 12 and swipe to Luke 4. Still committed to a real Bible, by the way. Having, having toured Israel faster than those electronic people. Just saying. <laughs> Luke 4. Right after being tempted by the devil, you see it in verse 13, Luke 4. Jesus returns to Galilee, and he does so in the power of the Spirit. And he enters the the synagogue there. And notice what uh, Luke records for us, beginning in verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. You see it? Returned in the power of the Spirit. And the news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and, and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Check this out. And he opened the book, and he found the place where it was written. Jesus selected the text that he would read. He found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set those who are free, those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. I bet they were. But what I want you to to just pick out of that is of all the places in the Isaiah scroll that he could choose. He certainly could have chose Isaiah 53 and read about his his sacrificial death, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that at all. Instead, he chooses Isaiah 61, and he speaks about the anointing of the Spirit of God upon him in his ministry. Jesus walked... And ministered in the power of the Spirit. And he expects us to do the same. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. He says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow. Do you see that? He left you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 
And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. An example. Jesus is an example for us who call upon his name. And the example that he leads, leaves us to follow in is an example of one who, who minist, lived and ministered in the power of the Spirit of God. Put your thumb back there to uh, Matthew chapter 12. Notice verse 18. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 18. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Jesus lived and ministered as the spirit-filled man. That's critical for us to understand what Matthew writes for us here, beginning in verse 15. And so what I want to do this morning, looking at verses 15 through 21, is I want to look at two aspects of this Holy Spirit's enablement in the ministry of Messiah so that we might emulate them in our own gospel witness. Jesus was enabled to minister in the power of the Spirit, and we are as well. And we are to emulate him in these things. So first aspect, verses 15 and following. He demonstrated wisdom in knowing when to retreat from conflict. Jesus demonstrated wisdom in knowing when to retreat from conflict. Pick it up in verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Aware of what? Aware of verse 14. Aware of the reality that the the Pharisees have now conspired against him. They're now actually planning together. The, The hatred that they have for him and his message is now crystallizing into a conspiracy in which they are going to murder him. And he's aware of this. Matthew doesn't tell us how he becomes aware of this. And so I don't think there's any need to speculate. The text tells us he is aware of it. He's aware of their intent to murder him. But notice how he responds to this threat. Notice how he responds. He retreats. He retreats. He doesn't gather up his disciples. He doesn't, he doesn't gather up the crowd. He is, he is still popular at this time, at least at a superficial level. He doesn't doesn't gather around him a a group of loyalists and and get ready for the fight. Instead, he discreetly withdraws. He discreetly withdraws. Why? In order to avoid further confrontation. In order to avoid further confrontation. Confrontation. Now, there's a, there will be a time when, when open confrontation uh, will be called for. 
And we're going to see a little bit of it just a little bit later in this chapter. And certainly there is the time at the end in which which Jesus uh, stands toe-to-toe with them and engages in open dispute on the Temple Mount, which will result in his crucifixion. But not now. Not now. It is not the time, and it is not the place. It's, It's not right for the final showdown. It will come of his own choosing rather than his growing list of enemies. And so Jesus will strategically retreat, and that's exactly what Matthew tells us. He retreats. And many follow him. And he healed them all. Isn't that interesting? Many follow him. He, he, he retreats into the countryside to avoid the confrontation. And the crowds, they're still following him. And, and why are they following him? Simply enough. He heals them. And notice, he, he doesn't heal a few here. He healed them all. He healed them all. What compassion. What love. What tenderness of heart. These crowds have no interest in the message that he is preaching. They have no interest in the kingdom of God as it really is. Only only their imagination of what it might be. They are following him, not because they are loyal to him. They are following him because he provides for them. And yet rather than turn on them, in compassion, he heals them all. And he tells them, verse 16, he warns them, Not to tell who he was. Isn't that interesting? Don't tell who I am. Throughout his public ministry, Jesus steadfastly refused the temptations to give in to both public and and private pressure to be a political deliverer. He wouldn't do it. In fact, at the, at the very height of his popularity, according to John chapter 6, he intentionally turns the crowds away until there's virtually no one left except his own disciples. And he says, are you going to leave me too? Why? Because he knows the kingdom does not come this way. It does not come this way. It cannot come through worldly means. God's purposes cannot be, be accomplished by political maneuverings, or, or by armed resistance, or even by popular appeal. Instead, people are made citizens of the kingdom of God one at a time. As they are supernaturally transformed by the Spirit of God that enables them to understand and believe what is written of Jesus in the Holy Scriptures. Paul writes it in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of Christ. There's no other way to accomplish the work of God than that God's way. And so Jesus withdraws. It's not time. Now, I don't 
It's not easy to kind of come to grips with this. We want to be bold, right? Bold for the kingdom. But there's a time and a place for the boldness. I think one of the most difficult challenges for us is to know when and where. We live in a hostile world, and when and where do we stand and fight, and and when and where do we withdraw to fight another time? Sometimes the greater good is, is best served by not speaking. There are situations at, at, of conflict at school or at work or, or even around the family dinner table in, in which it's, it's best not to speak. And then there are other times when, when we need to open our mouth and we need to speak even though it's going to cost us dearly. How do you know? When do I speak and when don't I? Only the Spirit of God can help us to have that kind of wisdom. It's only the Spirit of God. Jesus ministers in the power of the Spirit of God. He he knows when to withdraw. He knows when to enter into open confrontation. The same Spirit is available to you and to me. Spirit of God, by the way, He doesn't just zap you. He works in and through your mind as it is transformed by the Word of God. As you saturate your heart and mind with the Word of God, the the Spirit of God works with His Word to give you the wisdom in those situations. Jesus knew when it was time to retreat. Jesus knew when it was time to stand His ground. Pray that God would grant us that same wisdom when the conflicts come. Notice how Matthew sees this event, verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Isn't that interesting? This, this withdrawal, this retreat, was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Now what follows will be the longest citation, Old Testament citation in Matthew's entire gospel. This is it, the longest one. comes from Isaiah chapter 42, drawn from verses 1 to 4. It's part of the section of Isaiah that's known as the servant songs. It begins in chapter 42, runs to chapter 53. And in these, these servant songs, prophetically, the Messiah is presented as the, as the servant of Yahweh, the, the perfect one who accomplishes the Father's will, up to and including dying sacrificially on behalf of the nation, Isaiah 53. You know, if you're looking for a, for a, a deliverer, a king, a warrior, Can you imagine how disappointing this would be? A retreat? What are you talking about? General Patton never retreats. But Jesus does. But Jesus does. I mean, Jesus' own brothers, by the way, they they can't make heads nor tails out of all of this stuff. John chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, they say to him, hey, you know what? Let me give you a little advice here, brother. 
If someone wants to be really publicly popular, then they don't do things in secret. Thanks for the advice. Next. Under inspiration of the Spirit of God, Matthew sees in Jesus' strategic retreat evidence that he is Messiah. Jesus' passivity is the evidence of him being the king. That's what stands out in this. This, what, this? The, the, the strategic withdrawal, that, this. Can you say it that way? Just did. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. It, it is not an argument against his messiahship. It is evidence of his messiahship. Hey, the people are, are looking for a king to conquer and to kill. And, and what God gives them is a gentle healer. A gentle healer. It is the Spirit's enablement, the wisdom of the Spirit of God that enables Jesus to back down and pull back from this conflict. That's available to you and I as well. Second aspect of the enablement is in verses 18 to 21, and and it's this. Jesus ministered humbly and gently. Humbly and gently. Isaiah writes, behold, behold my servant, look, pay attention, heads up, don't miss it. That's what behold means. Check out my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. Remember we heard that at the baptism, right? I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. The Jews despised the Gentiles. The, the common thought at the time were, were the Gentiles who had been created by God in order to fuel the fires of hell. They were charcoal to be destroyed. They were the people, the special people in the sight of God. And the prophet says... Uh, by the will of God, as, as part of Messiah's ministry, he will reach to the Gentile nations as well. They shall, they shall hear of his message. This gentle healer. He will not quarrel, verse 19, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. You know, I think one of the most discouraging truths about human leadership is that it is, it is generally characterized by self-aggrandizement. Generally speaking, human leadership is, is about the leader being important. It is, so, it is so often characterized by arrogance on the part of the leader. So often, dominance. We lead by domination, right? We dominate those underneath us. So often human leadership is beset with our quarrelsome 
spirit. How often have we encountered these things, right? Even Jesus' disciples demonstrated that same pathology. They had been with him for three plus years. According to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45, Jesus has repeatedly told them he's going to Jerusalem to die. They're on their way with him, and they are arguing about who is greatest in the kingdom. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. We don't see a self-aggrandizement. We don't see an arrogance. We don't see a, a, a dominance. We don't, we don't see a quarrelsome spirit. And in fact, just the opposite. Jesus is able to, to oppose evil without adopting worldly methodologies. This, this term, quarrel, carries the idea of wrangling or, or hassling or, or brawling. You ever been in a meeting with leaders when uh, they start brawling with one another? Huh? Sometimes it comes even to actual fisticuffs. Puff up their chests and, you know, who's in charge here? He will not cry out. The idea is to shout or or to scream excitedly. Together they they describe the the unique ministry of of the Messiah. How unlike the pretenders, those who came before him and those who came after him. He he was no rabble rouser. He didn't inflame people's passions. He He didn't form bands of zealots. By appealing to their emotions. You know, let's, let's storm the castle. Everybody grab something. Let's go. No? Just a peaceful teacher of the Scriptures who ministered compassionately to people in need. Following his death and resurrection, his uh, disciples learned their lesson, didn't they? Just a small group of them They turned the entire Roman Empire upside down with a simple methodology. Compassionately, gently, humbly teach the Word of God and minister to the hurting. Beloved, we don't need to see Jesus as a coward. That's not what we're seeing here. He's not a coward. When the time is right, he will stand his ground. In the face of of false and harmful teaching, he he will speak courageously from the Word of God. He'll expose the error of the scribes and the Pharisees, to be sure. But he didn't look to instigate confrontations. He didn't try to have confrontations. In fact, he avoided them at times. He didn't care about being right He didn't care about winning the argument. He cared about the souls of men and women enslaved by the father of lies. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. You know, this 
This impacted the Apostle Paul. This impacted the Apostle Paul. Here was a man who was trained as a Pharisee, trained in the use of rhetoric and argumentation. And within the, within the tradition of the Pharisees, you kind of show off your manliness and muscle by, by entering into dispute and debate. Paul was, was more than competent at that kind of worldly approach. And yet Paul, under inspiration and work of the Spirit of God within him, he, he imbibed the Messiah's teaching, his character. And he writes for us uh, over in 2 Timothy. I'll turn you there. 2 Timothy chapter 2. By the way, when I, was Israel, when I was in Israel, the Bible teacher that we had with us there, a man I have such great respect for, and he said to us on more than one occasion, he said, you know, you need to think about the Apostle Paul traveling all over the Mediterranean world with a copy of Matthew's Gospel tucked under his arm. And I thought, yeah, that's exactly right. It's the first Gospel, by the way, written plenty early for Paul to take on his missionary travels. And here Paul writes to Timothy, Beginning in verse 22, he says, Now flee from youthful lusts. And the lusts here, by the way, are not sexual lusts. The lusts that he is speaking about here are the lusts to enter into dispute and argumentation and to, and to be right. So flee from such youthful lust and pursue righteousness and faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce what? Quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Can't you just hear the echo of, of Jesus in the words of Paul? You want to be used of God to reach people? Be gentle, be peaceable, teach the scriptures, avoid entering into foolish. And ignorant quarrels and speculations. Keep the main thing the main thing. You don't need to be right on everything. You need to show them the Savior. In word and deed. By the way, Peter has the same thing to say in 1 Peter 3.15, right? Where he says, uh, you know, be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks of you. And And then he goes on and he says, with gentleness and reverence. Practice your apologetics to be sure. But make sure it is wrapped in gentleness and reverence. This is not a high school debate tournament. No spiritual points for being right. Back to Matthew 12, the prophet goes on talking about the Messiah. 
He says, a battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. The reed is a, it's just part of a plant that grows by the millions in Israel, or, or did certainly in the first century. All along the rivers and, and waterways, there, were, there was just reeds growing there, like bulrushes. And it had all kinds of common uses. You know, you could make a pen out of them, and, and uh, we actually uh, uh, had opportunity to sit with a Torah scribe and, and uh, watch him prepare some of his writing instruments, and some of them were made out of bamboo. So it was used as a, as a writing instrument. It was, it was used as a, as a measuring rod. It was, it was used as a walking stick. It had a lot of uses, and it was very common throughout the land. And because it was so common, if it, if it became damaged in any way, it was disposable. You just chuck it. You don't fix it. You don't, you know, you don't uh, hold on to it. You just throw it away. Worthless. Kind of like our, our modern personal electronics. I was trying to think of, a, of something that would, you know, equate. So it's, it's sort of like, you know, your personal computer and your VCR and your DVD player and your, you know, your add-on and on and computer game controller thing. You know, it doesn't work. Nobody takes it to a repair shop. What do you do? You junk it. You just junk it because they're everywhere. Same idea. A battered reed. A bruised reed. Just junk. A smoldering wick. In the ancient world, they used olive oil lamps to, to light their homes. Just kind of a little bowl of clay and it pinched off narrow at one end and there would be a little wick that would sit down in the oil. And the wick would draw the oil and you would light it like a candle. And over time, the, the wick would burn down and when it burned down low enough, uh, it wasn't able to produce a flame. Again, kind of like a candle wick when it gets too short, right? It just sort of smolders. It's, you can see a little light, but it's smoky, and, you know, it's just not all that helpful. So the common thing to do was to snuff it out and replace it. The prophet talks about these things. He says, a battered reed he will not break off. A, a smoldering wick he will not put out. The idea is that that Jesus will not discard people. He will not just throw them away. When they're damaged, when they're they're vulnerable. But he he will work with them. He will minister to them. Come to me all who are who are weary and, and heavy laden, right? And you shall find rest for your souls. I'm not going to just throw you away like the religions of men. As long as they're a spark of life, Jesus will work with them. How different. How different from the leadership both of his day and ours, right? How Quick we are to, to see people as nothing but a means to accomplish an end. Even in ministry, the project, the, the ministry goal becomes more important than the people. So we drive them 
to accomplish great things for God. Rather than seeing them as the true priority of God. How impatient we can be. How, how quick we can dismiss people who don't get it. Oh, they just don't get it. Let's move on. We need to find our high potential candidates and, and work with them. Yeah, Jesus, a battered reed he will not break and discard, a, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. How unlike Jesus we find ourselves, huh? How unlike him. How long will he continue to minister with such gentleness and tenderness and humility? End of verse 20, until he leads justice to victory. Isn't that interesting? There's a termination point. Until something happens. The something that will happen is his second coming, beloved. Right now, we are, we are still living in the days of the gentle, tender, humble ministry of Jesus in which, in which he implores people to come, to follow him. But there will be an end. The curtain will draw. When Christ returns, he, he will return as the, as the warrior king, the greater son of David. He will crush his enemies, the Scripture tells us, with a rod of iron. He will establish his throne. All those who humble their hearts before him now, who bend the knee in faith, know know him as the gentle healer. All those who refuse, they will humble themselves. They they will bow the knee, but they will do so at at the point of his sword. Philippians is pretty clear on that. All will confess him to be Messiah someday. There is an ending point to the mercy of God. If you find yourself here this morning and you're still making merchandise of God's mercy, oh, he's not going to do anything. He's, he's like Santa Claus, you know? just all goodness and cuddly. How dangerous for you. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. Humble your heart before the King. Fall on your face. Call out to Him to be gracious and merciful to you. A sinner. In his name, the Gentiles will hope, it says. That's us. We who, at one time, were separated from Israel, outside the covenants of promise, no hope in the world, no access. The king has thrown his arms wide open. And he calls for you to come. Beloved, we can never, ever waffle, compromise, or blunt the sharp point of the gospel. Never. 
ever. But we also need to take a cue from our Savior. There are certain times and situations, the when and the, and the where and the how we speak. Let our speech be seasoned with grace. By the Spirit's enablement, let us be wise enough to know the difference. huh? Shrewd as a serpent and innocent as a dove. May God have mercy on our souls. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you sent your own son into the world. That Jesus would walk among us. That he would humble himself in full dependence upon your Holy Spirit. That he would saturate his heart and mind with the word of God from the time of his youth. And that when the moment came, the moment of your choosing, when he would be launched into public ministry, that he would conduct himself with wisdom, innocence, preaching the good news of the kingdom, lavishly displaying your mercy and grace through the healing ministries, calling People to repent, to flee to the mercy of God. Thank you that he fearlessly went to the cross, despising the shame, offering himself fully and completely without reserve to bear in his body the sin of his people, to suffer the unspeakable agony of carrying the burden of sin of feeling the wrath your wrath our father against sin drinking the cup of wrath until every drop was gone thank you our father for his resurrection for the exclamation point that in this one death has been conquered in this one sin has been broken. In this one lies life everlasting. Thank you, our Father, for that individual or individuals who loved us enough to tell us this good news. Thank you, our Father, for your Spirit's work in opening our eyes and ears to see it and hear it and our hearts to embrace it. And may you now work in us, that we might continue in that long line of disciples, proclaiming the truth in gentleness and humility. For Jesus' sake, amen. God bless you, beloved. I hope to see you Saturday afternoon.